To the Blessed One, the Lord, who fully attained perfect enlightenment, do that teaching which he expounded so well, and to the disciples who have practiced well, do this, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, we render with offerings our rightful homage. It is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. May these simple offerings be accepted for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed The teachings are completely explained by him. I vow to them. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I vow to the Son. Now let us pay preliminary homage to the Buddha. To the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Now let us chant the recollection of the Buddha. Have the Blessed One's reputation as spread as follows. He, the Blessed One, is indeed the Pure One, the perfectly enlightened One. He is impeccable in conduct and understanding, the accomplished One, the knower of the world. He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. He is a teacher of gods and humans. He is awake and holy. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Buddha. The Buddha. The truly worthy one, endowed with such excellent qualities, whose being is composed of purity, transcendental wisdom and compassion, who has enlightened the wise like the sun, awakening the lotus. I bow my head to that peaceful chief of conquerors, the Buddha who is the safe, Secure refuge of all beings. As the first object of recollection, I venerate him with bowed head. 
I am indeed the Buddha's servant. The Buddha is my Lord and guide. The Buddha is sorrow's destroyer who bestows blessings on me. To the Buddha I dedicate this body and life and in devotion I will walk the Buddha's path of awakening. For me there is no other refuge. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Buddha, and the blessing of this practice by its power may all obstacles be overcome. Kind body, speech of mind. Bhagavato Arahato Sambhutasanamotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sambhutasanamotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sambhutasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Taura ye Sodawan Tabamunjan to Satan. So this is twenty four hours now. You've been under the three refuges and the eight precepts and what is the result so far? <laughs> well, this is a, a way of questioning, you know, just not to think that there need be any result, but a way of looking, of a kind of looking inward. And so like questioning or self-inquiry is, is one way of reflecting on the way things are. Because like in this special situation, um, many, some of you are quite new to this kind of retreat or this kind of experience. And many of you have been on many retreats. Then we think in terms of good and bad, or I've had a, a good meditation or a bad meditation, and we want good meditations, <laughs> and we don't want bad ones. But in reflecting, it doesn't matter whether they're good or bad. They're, that good is like this, bad is like this. So, you, you know, the, the desire mind, uh, we want to feel good, and 
and feel we're getting somewhere and that our meditation is, makes us feel good or we feel calm and then if it doesn't, if it isn't like that then we feel it's bad meditation which we, we can doubt, we think maybe we aren't doing it right or we are blaming uh, the people around us or whatever. But reflecting on the way it is, 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 isn't, uh, is no longer believing in these emotional habits of wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, but in recognizing the way it is. So Lung Pa Cha used to say, good is good and bad is good. Success is good, failure is good. And this way we, we, we're not, we, we can reflect on our, this, this, even using meditation as a kind of personal attempt to feel good or be happy. Of course, in, in meditation we can become very obsessed, or very self-selfish really, because we want to be under complete control. And so the, notice how we, we don't want any kind of disruption, noise, interference. Because the more we kind of deprive our senses of a lot of stimulation, the more calm we become. If we can uh, practice a uh, kind of sensory deprivation style in that that of course is uh, means that we do get very calm because there's nothing uh, kind of stirring us up attacking the senses or irritating us to any strong degree but in reflecting on the world and the way things are you know that the world is like this it's not it, it's uh, uh, you know, most of our life we're going to feel this irritation, a stronger kind of impingement, uh, loud noises or, or uh, strong sensations, uh, aggravating, frustra frustrating experiences are normal to this state we're in as human beings, as conscious beings on a planet. Notice the planet itself, the sense realm, it's a sensitive realm. And sensitivity implies pleasure and pain, and there's not just pleasure, but pain. And so we, we, need, to, we need to see that, that being sensitive, in a sensitive state, being a, a sentient being, living in a sense realm, that it's like this. It's, uh, it's not an ideal realm where everything is the way we imagine we'd like it to be, but it, it's like this sometimes. It's quite beautiful, pleasurable. Much of the time it's neither nor, and much of the time it can be quite uh, irritating, quite frustrating, painful. So awakening to uh, this awakened awareness, awakening to Dhamma is, is what the Buddha was pointing to, was encouraging, this wake up. And one time I remember in 
in, well, I was in uh, Cambodia in uh, 97 and giving a talk at the university in Phnom Penh and they asked me a question about uh, Buddhism being a religion um, that is a backward religion, keeps people ignorant and makes them sleepy and stupid. <laughs> because this is what the Khmer Rouge was teaching them, you know, that the uh, of course, Marxism, communism tends to see religion of any sort as something that uh, is an opiate, the opiate of the people. And so Buddhism has been blamed for being, uh, you know, many people do assume that, uh, because, you know, that Buddhism might be a kind of religion that keeps people in the dark ages or in the... Uh, you know, doesn't allow them to develop or advance. Because when we, when we, many of, say, in the previous century, many of the Buddhist countries seemed to, to be the, the, the poorer countries, the least developed. But then if somebody asked me to describe Buddhism, uh, if somebody asked me to, to give a definition of Buddhism in one sentence, I said I could do it in one word, which is, wake up. <laughs> it's a religion uh, or a teaching of awakening. Because that, if you want to use just that word, that, uh, that is quite a precise definition of, of what it's all about. Awaken. So at this moment, I mean, we can be sitting here and not really be awake. And we can be caught up in our own views, opinions, feelings, lost in, in the delusions of our mind. Even though our eyes are open and we look like we're awake, we may not be awake at all. So awakening is a simple ability to pay attention. It has a sense of listening, of of embracing, of, of being fully present. The, we reflect on the way it is. So just notice at this moment, in terms of direct experience, that, that each one of us is a conscious being, a point of light in the universe. So, each one of us is the center of the universe in terms of this moment. Now, this isn't meant to be kind of a, an ego trip, saying I'm the, I'm the center of the universe as a personality. But in terms of, of experience right now, is that for us, for each one of us, this is the center point right here. You know, for this being right here, Ajahn Sumedho, the center point is, is here and now from this, from this point. So, so the, this point here is all there, there ever really is in terms of experience and how that includes the, the world around me. Or you at this, at this moment, in, in this time, in this place. So consciousness is is light itself, and it's and it's uh, uh, so that you can see yourself in terms of, as a 
in in this vast universal system that is quite impressive and uh, quite frightening in many ways. And it's so vast and so mysterious. Uh, when we look up at the sky at night, isn't it? It can be kind of rather threatening when you see all the stars in the sky and you you wonder what it's all about and, and you feel kind of helpless, a kind of helpless, vulnerable little creature on this planet in terms of just physically um, and, and in terms of our ability to understand the vastness and the, the wonder or the, the, the beauty of this universe that we're experiencing. When we want to, to kind of understand it in the terms of our uh, desires and wishes, then of course we can only feel frustrated. It's too too vast, too mysterious, too 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 much for us to handle on that level of of trying to name every bit, every piece, and because we tend to think we can only know something through naming it. We don't trust our intuitive relationship to the universe, the, a, a more universal intelligence that we begin to recognize as our true inheritance when we stop trying to conceive the universe or fit the universe into the, the rather poverty-stricken perceptions that we can create through our language. So in the mystical experience, isn't it, or in this more intuitive intelligence that we're beginning to realize, recognize and appreciate, then, then we can turn to the mystery and the vastness and the unknown, not in trying to, to pinpoint it or fit it into uh, perceptions that we, we have already, but in our willingness to allow it to be the way it is, to trust in just this, this moment, to open and be fully with the pure presence, with the pure intelligence, with the consciousness, without trying to, to uh, pin it down in any way, without trying to separate it, divide it up into parts, particles, bits and pieces. Notice that in so much of our conscious experience we, you know, the, the completely unenlightened, unawakened human being uh, experiences life through perceptions of it. So, you know, when we get culturally conditioned, uh, we, we have a, a kind of way of, of experiencing life through a particular ways of perceiving experience. Whether they, some are, you know, all right, some are, are really horrible. You know, we can so much, uh, like fear and desire influence the way we experience ourselves and the world around us. Cultural conditioning you know, is basically uh, comes out of avicca or ignorance. So each culture or civilization or whatever has its own prejudices, its biases, its particular kind of worldview that can be 
kind of grand or, or mean or whatever, but it is uh, a way of perceiving ourselves in the universe we live in. Uh, and then we tend to only experience life through these perceptions. So this is like being unawakened. We're merely a kind of a conditioned creature, uh, a helpless victim of our conditioning. And that means that we, we kind of, if we, if we hadn't had very, very good experience with life, our conditioning wasn't very good, then we tend to perceive life through even these most kind of perverted or, or corrupted or distorted perceptions. So then, awakening to the, to the uh, present, the here and now, we're learning to, say, let go of the limited conditioning process that we've acquired and uh, open to the, the, the Dhamma or the truth of the way it is, which is not, we don't need to perceive it as being anything because we're willing to fully embrace it and be with it as it is, which includes the conditioning of the mind, the sanya sankara, the vedana, and the rupa, or the physical body. <laughs> it includes sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. It includes thought and memory. But the refuge then is not in any perception or any cultural bias or any fixed position that we can uh, think of or create through thought, but through this intuitive awareness, through an act of faith or an imminent act of attention through this present here and now in which then we begin to realize the unconditioned. So when, when I, uh, bef when, when requested to give this reflection this evening, then I chanted the Namo Tassa three times, and then I recited this Pali phrase, Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tora, which is a Pali phrase which the Buddha proclaimed, the gates to the deathless are open. Aparuta de sang amatasa means the deathless. Dwara means doors or gates. So this, this to me was always a very significant, uh, I mean, kind of a joyful proclamation. Because if you're stuck in, in, in the kind of dismal world of your own kind of limited view of life, you know, in the, in the kind of depressing fears and, and uh, desires and anxieties that, that one tends to cling to and, and, and tend to, to kind of regurgitate into one's consciousness endlessly, then, uh, then you think maybe there's nothing, you know, is this all life is about? Do I have to spend the rest of my life with just kind of fumbling around in this, in, with this stuff? had a moment of joy now and then, a bit of fun and, and that, but especially as you're getting older, it can become increasingly less fun and more dismal. 
I remember childhood being the quite happy one up to the age of five when I went to school. And that was a traumatic experience. Entering school, entering kindergarten. Never forgave my mother for that. <laughs> Why she made me go and participate in such a dismal experience as that, I don't know. And that was what was expected, isn't it, if, when you're five? And they even start earlier now, I think. That was nearly 70 years ago. <laughs> They're not 65. <laughs> but also, intuitive, isn't it? There's an intuition, a sense of there's something more to life than, than what generally is accepted on, on most people's social experience. And of course religions point to this, this reality in their own way and, and that's their function. A religion, the word religion itself is taken from the Latin uh, which means uh, religio, which means a kind of bond, a, a sense of binding yourself to some convention that that takes you to the ultimate, or the absolute, or the divine, or to God, or to the deathless reality. So, so the, all religions then can be seen as conventions pointing at this. Not, not in themselves are they that ultimate reality. They're, they are the convention that is pointed, the finger pointing at the moon. They are the signpost the arrow pointing in the right direction. So then, rather than just end up looking at the convention, which many, many people do, <laughs> they never get past the signpost, uh, so they never, they, <laughs> they never get to, to the ultimate reality because they get stuck with the, with the convention. So, how to use this Buddhist convention? You know, how to develop this, this, this convention that we have, which is a very good one, uh, pointing at this deathless, the amatasa, the deathless reality or the unconditioned. And this is how, what in uh, Buddhist terms, the kind of terminologies that we use. So there's the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated. Uh, they use the word nibbana. Uh, they, they use the word uh, viraga, niroda, nibbana, anatta. These kind of words convey this. This uh, uh, are pointing toward this this deathless, this ultimate, this unconditioned reality that's here and now. So that's why in, the, in, in awakening, when we awaken, it's not just awakening to, to how I feel or, or, or the conditions that, that I'm identified with, but that awakening itself, as you begin to trust it, you realize that is the unconditioned, that is the gate or the door to the ultimate reality or the unconditioned.
So to realize the unconditioned isn't a matter of, of uh, perceiving it or seeing it as an object, but realizing it, awakening and trusting and relaxing and resting in this state of, atten- of, of relaxed attention. Then when the Buddha taught his first sermon, he, was, he, he used what we call the Four Noble Truths. So after the Buddha's enlightenment, he, when he gave his first sermon to, the five, to his five uh, colleagues in the Deer Park in Saranath, he, used, he didn't use uh, a kind of metaphysical teaching or doctrine he used the, what, what we, in, in our terminology, call the uh, noble truths. So the, the first noble truth is the noble truth of suffering, or dukkha. So this brings us to something that is quite ordinary, isn't it? This is, this is easy to see. Suffering is the common experience of all human beings. So it's... it's, it's it's just so, you know, every, whether you're rich or poor uh, in countries like this that are so well off and, and, and so uh, developed, yet how, many, how much suffering there is among the most fortunate Americans. You know, we can see it. We can identify it. We suffer even though we, we have everything we want. We still suffer. So it's not just like poverty or being without or having a tyrannical uh, government or being in a war that is suffering, but even in peacetime, in abundance, in affluence, in privilege, in status, and all the best, people still suffer. And in fact, sometimes we, because we, we have more time to suffer, <laughs> and in, in your, when you're living on the edge of survival, you don't think about it that much. You just make do and get in and try to get something to eat. Well, we have time to think and to, to create more kind of refined forms of suffering and anguish and despair uh, because of, uh, we, our life isn't on the edge of poverty or just basic survival. We, we have time to be neurotic Uh, it's in, in, in interfaith though, meetings, like in Britain, for example, in, in people, it's always interesting when a Buddhist attends uh, an interfaith meeting with theistic religions, because uh, uh, Buddhism is almost the, the kind of opposite of, of uh, takes the opposite approach from the theistic one. So, in Buddhism, it's not developed a theology. And so, because of that, uh, uh, there's many questions from uh, theistic religions about, is Buddhism really a religion? Is it just a philosophy? Uh, and oftentimes it looks to, to Christians as a kind of uh, um, annihilationism. Because if you, if you uh, 
just use logic and reason with the Four Noble Truths, you end up, you, you can end up with a kind of annihilationist, nihilistic result. Because it's dealing with suffering and the end of suffering. So it puts this, puts the, the, these Noble Truths around something very basic, something very ordinary to every single human being on this planet at this very moment. And it was obviously, the, the, you know, the same, the same problem existed at the time of the Buddha, which was, you know, an ancient time, 2,544 years ago in India. And yet the, the Four Noble Truths apply to our life, just no doubt, just as well as they did to the lives of people at the time of the Buddha. So the, the, the human suffering hasn't really changed. It's the same, the same thing. So when Buddhism, so many times people say Buddhism is an ancient religion, and they wonder why in countries, modern countries, they're so interested in it, because uh, they think of, of a religion as a, as a very cultural thing, as something like you're particularly interested in maybe ancient Indian culture. <laughs> well, not many of us not many of you would probably be here if it was just about, about ancient, ancient Indian culture. I'm, I'm personally quite interested in ancient Indian culture. But I don't know if I'd devote my life like I have to that subject, <laughs> if that's all there was. But because the, the suffering or the dukkha was very obvious in my life, it, it did ring true to me that this, this was something that uh, that addressed uh, an immediate need and an immediate problem. Notice that it's called a noble truth. Uh, so it's it, so the Buddha is raising dukkha or suffering into a, into a higher place. You say the, the normally isn't that suffering is something we want to get rid of if we're suffering either mentally, physically, emotionally, or whatever, we're just trying always to try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Take drugs of some Prozac or, or, or some kind of, of anodyne in which we can feel better, feel tranquil. Tranquilizers or antidepressants or drink whiskey or do something, smoke pot. Get rid of this terrible feeling of of depression or separation or anxiety, worry, or just physical pain, physical distress. And instead of just trying to get rid of it, the Buddha puts it into this interesting context of a, of a noble truth. Well, contemplate this. What's noble about dukkha? <laughs> Why did the Buddha call it a noble truth? And and this you know this is this uh, this is for reflection and from my my own uh, kind of uh, reflections on this question is that that this that it's through our suffering through admitting through beginning to understand to change our attitude to suffering that we can liberate ourselves from suffering. Because in the Four Noble Truths, the, the statement, there is dukkha, and there is the end of dukkha. 
and there is the way of non-suffering, which is the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, or you can call it the way of non-suffering. So taking suffering or dukkha as a noble truth, then the, our relationship to it now is to understand it. In other words, instead of just trying to get rid of it or blame it on somebody or something, or to see it as something that something wrong with me, that I, why do I have to suffer like this, we now begin to, to look at it in terms of suffering and in, in open to it, begin to investigate it, begin to notice what it is. We can explore it, we can examine it. And in order to do that, we have to accept it. You, know, you can't, if you're always trying to resist it or get rid of it, there's no way you can understand suffering because you're, all, you're, you're too busy denying it or rejecting it or resisting it. So that's why in this first noble truth, the, the insight is, the Buddha said, you should understand this suffering, this dukkha. And to, then this word understand is, you know, to, is, is through accepting. When you, when you accept this suffering, instead of just trying to get rid of it, when you examine it, investigate it, then you, you, you need to really let it be the way it is. So recognize this awakening then is awakening to suffering, to the, to the unsatisfactoriness of the conditioned realm that we're so strongly identified with. So in terms of the five khandhas, the rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vinyana, these, these five aggregates, they call them, or five groups, or the, the one translation, five heaps. And I quite like that, like a heap, you know. A, you're not, you're not, you don't need to, to kind of go into it in detail and, and kind of know everything about everything, isn't it? You just have these five heaps, and you say, this belongs in this heap, this heap. Five, you've got five fingers, e- number easy to have perspective on, you know? If you had 84,000 or 84 million heaps, it's just too much for the average human mind, you know? You can't cope with that. <laughs> and, and, and of course, the, uh, when we, we monastery up in uh, Amayagiri, you know, we're near the city of 10,000 Buddhas. And so we think of Bhagiri as the city of one single Buddha, <laughs> then one, and then the city of 10,000 Buddhas. That means a lot of Buddhas. Uh, so it's a, it's a Chinese way of, of saying a lot, isn't it? Many. That doesn't have to be a precise statistic of 10,000. But in terms of of the five heaps, where the five aggregates, this is where we're beginning to notice, like the with the way we identify with the physical body, and just like we were doing today, in, in observing the posture, in in our relationship now to the body is intuitive rather than personal. 
and that this noting the posture, the sitting, standing, walking, lying down postures, the the feeling of the body as experience, its its tensions, its pressures, its its heat, its coldness, its uh, pleasure and pain. This is an intuitive realization of the nature of the body, rather than a personal, uh, you know, the sense of seeing that this body is as me. I'm this person, this physical form. I'm this face. So the body then is is not. We're taking the person, the sense of it being me and mine as a personality, out of it, and really relating to this physical form uh, through experiencing it as it is, as we can experience it intuitively rather than analytically, or conventionally, like we do when we see ourselves in a mirror or, or a photograph. With our, our identity with our face. You know, when we, when, when somebody wants a picture of me, I give them, I can give them a picture of just my face. They don't need to know about the rest of it. You know, if I gave them a picture of my left hand, that would be, you know, it would be more difficult for somebody to recognize that as Arjun Sumato. My right foot probably it would be easier to. <laughs> but the, generally we use the face as, as our identity. So when somebody's face uh, is scarred or changes or that, then it's very upsetting, isn't it, to lose that sense of yourself as, as this person, this, this kind of face. But and that's based on the identification. I am this body, I am this face. But in terms of intuition, then it, it isn't, that, that concern drops away. Because we're experiencing the reality of the body as a condition. In terms of its weight, or its, its, its feeling, its presence, its, uh, as we experience it not through personal identity, but through uh, intuitive awareness. Well, apply that also to, to Vedana, or feeling. Pleasure and pain, a neutral feeling. And that we, uh, on the personal level, we want pleasure, we don't want pain. Neutrality, we're just bored with. When we want to be entertained, we, we don't want to sit in front of a white, blank wall for very long, we want to show a movie on it, so that the movie can be very exciting, you know, with a lot of like blockbuster type movies that we have now. It's just bam, 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 fast cars, explosions, sex and violence, uh, one kind of uh, exciting moment, one right after another. <laughs> Because these are extremes of of stimulation, and uh, one time in in uh, Amarbachi, somebody brought a video of a man painting a wall white, <laughs> and and it was the most boring thing to watch, <laughs> and it lasted I think for several hours. Uh, this video. <laughs> 
<laughs> so neutrality is is that we see as boring, and that's why with meditation, isn't it? You're you're moving to a more neutral, rather than seeking excitement and the noble silence, isn't it? It calms it calms us down. Where we can get very excited through uh, scintillating conversations or or through watching uh, videos or television or whatever, talking about the world, uh, that we can excite the mind through, through just uh, fantasies or images that we create. But as we move toward the breath or relating to the body, this physical body is through intuitive awareness, this, this isn't exciting, this isn't an, an extreme experience. So it's moving. So when we begin to, to intuitively uh, realize Vedana as experience in the present, then we we don't need to have strong Vedana or extremes of pleasure and pain, because we're opening to what is quite neutral in terms of Vedana. So much of the Vedana is is never noticed because it it has no extreme quality to it. So notice in, in when we're examining the body in terms of its feeling, its, its, its Vedana, then you wear the, the, say, the sleeve touching the skin. Now I'm, I have to pay attention to that because it's not uh, a pleasurable or painful Vedana. It's not Sukha or Tukha Vedana, what they call Atukha Matsukha Vedana, neither pleasurable nor painful. But there is Vedana there, there's feeling when you notice it. So you're, you're, you're beginning to awaken to subtleties that you would never notice when you're just caught in the seeking uh, the pleasure of life and trying to get rid of the pain or the extremities of feeling, of experience, of Vedana. Then consciousness itself, or Vijnana, is interesting one. Because even though we're all conscious at this moment, we, what, what is consciousness? Even in, the West, in, in uh, say, in Europe, for example, people are questioning, what, what is consciousness? And psychiatrists and psychologists and that, this is a big subject that people are really, really kind of investigating now because uh, it it's never been really understood very well what consciousness really is. In fact, I've heard psych, uh, scientists or psych, psychiatrists or psychologists say that animals are not even conscious. They can't see it. They think that they, they identify consciousness with, obviously, with thinking. Because they think animals don't think. Uh, so, so they can't be conscious, and yet to a Buddhist that is a totally absurd thing to say, because we, you know, animals are conscious, they're conscious beings. Consciousness is not just, uh, it, is, it, it has nothing to do with thinking. It's, it's, a nat- it's the, the natural way things are. It's nature. So when we 
But if, if we limit our conscious experience merely to sanya sankara, or the conditioning of the mind, the cultural conditioning, the self-identity, the limited ways of perceiving, then, then our conscious experience is limited to, to just the sense of myself as a person and my, you know, the position I have in the society and the duties, responsibilities, my problems and so forth are, are, are seen as the kind of, um, of the perceptions that, that I experience life through. But when I let go, when I don't create perceptions or fantasies into consciousness, then, then we begin to realize or recognize consciousness is like this. So consciousness is how I would describe it, like is, um, is universal, it's not, not a kind of personal thing. And it's not inside the, the body or the head or the brain. These are these seem more like radios or or some kind of way of of tuning in to consciousness. Uh, and so it's it's not like the, that's why we can intuit, be aware of the body, and because the body is is uh, in this is in the consciousness rather consciousness in the body. Or the consciousness of you that I have now, just through sight. Allow, it's not that you're in my brain, is it? It's not. But it's this, this consciousness through, the, through this birth in this, this form, in this entity. Then the consciousness comes with birth. Isn't it? As, as an individual entity that is conscious in this universe. And, and that consciousness is not, uh, has no personal quality. It's not male or female. It's not European or American, not black or white, not, uh, not mine, not yours. But when we begin to recognize or realize consciousness, we, we have this sense of, of a connectedness, of a universality, uh, a oneness that we we forget when we're identified on the sanya sankara level of I am the body, I am this person, I am this, this, uh, my feelings and my, my opinions and views and myself as an individual is a separative, isn't it? I separate myself, I divide myself off from the rest of you. I'm Arjun Samedo, you're somebody else. So that's a, that's a way of thinking, isn't it, in which, which the uh, division takes place. But as we begin to trust in awareness, it's through this, this awakened attention to awareness that we can realize consciousness is like this. So there's an in, there's intel, it's, an intel, it's intelligent, but it's not personal. It's where wisdom comes. It's not, it's not learned kind of wisdom that you, you don't memorize Confucius or Plato or all the sayings of the Buddha. It's, it's wisdom available to all of us. It's a universal, it's not a personal or cultural wisdom. So then uh, we have perspective on self, on how I create me 
as a personality, as a separate being, as a as a man identifying with the with the body, as uh, an American, as a as a as a generation, an old man. Now I call myself an old man. And people my age, they don't like that. They say, you're not old. <laughs> but when you ask somebody 20, whether 67 is old, they say, I'm really old. <laughs> but if you ask somebody 67, whether they're old, they say, no, middle age. <laughs> so it's all relative, isn't it? But these are, these are creations, isn't it? Am I this body? You know, this, is this, this body me, or is it just the natural condition of, uh, that was born it, and its, its nature is to age? And so this is just natural uh, condition, it's not personal. The body is like this, its nature uh, is, it, it, since it is impermanent, then it, 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 as it grows up and then it ages and then it dies, this is, this is the natural state of things. It's Dhamma rather than uh, some kind of personal problem. Dukkha then is, is noting uh, how we create this suffering around, say, identity with the body or with the, va- with the feelings or the perceptions or the thoughts or memories or the emotions that we have. We, our conscious experience is limited, as I said before, to to perception, to perceiving things, and we don't recognize or realize the deathless because we tend to only notice uh, that which we're conditioned to perceive. Now it's interesting with people who have, you know, when you like in London, for example, they open this new art gallery called the Tate Modern, and they 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 refurbished an old uh, 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 el, el, power, station. power station on on the Thames River, and they uh, it's quite it's quite an amazing place. You go in the Tate Modern; they've got all this their all their displays of modern art there, and of course it's it's uh, interesting because you don't we can't figure out what a lot of it is about. <laughs> <laughs> and so people get very frustrated you know they 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 because they can't perceive it as something some people get very ill at ease if they can't you know if it doesn't they can't see it and name it in some way but i find i quite like going to the tape modern just because it stops the thinking mind i don't know what it is i'm quite willing to let it be the way it is being a meditator don't have to don't feel obliged to 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 know what no to have a perception and see it through a particular uh, uh, comfortable way of looking at something so when we when we have no way of perceiving it when we just see it doesn't make any sense we tend to dismiss it or not even notice it so in meditation what we're doing is we're kind of awakening Two, conscious experience as a flow rather than just through the, the kind of 
uh, desultory style of perceiving something, whereas you're just going from one thing to another. But you're be beginning to to trust in not knowing, in in not in not not having not having a perception, but in allowing the flow of conscious experience to be the way it is, which includes the conditions, the perceptions, the habits, the emotions, the physical body, as well as not knowing, as well as emptiness, as well as pure consciousness, as well as the deathless. So we, as we awaken then, we are aware that very gate or door of awakening is the deathless itself. That we call the Amatta Dhamma in Pali. Now you can't see the Amatta Dhamma. It's not an object. Where uh, conditioned phenomena, you can always perceive. Uh, it's always you can see it as a as a mental object. We call it aramana in Pali. So it, you know, like like the sense of yourself. You can actually witness. You know, the sense of I am Arjun Sumato and I am this this type of person. You know, when you hear yourself, you can you can actually there's a, this you can you can observe the ego. Because you're not the ego, but you can observe the sense of yourself and what you think you are, what you like and don't like. All this can be observed as a mental object, as a Ramana. Or emotions, you observe. You know when you're feeling angry or lonely or depressed. There's a, a knowing that I'm depressed or I'm, I'm really upset. But the, because you can, you can observe an emotion that which observes the emotion is, is actually, you know, transcending the emotion, is not the anger, is not the depression. You can observe the body because it's not self, it's not, not yours really, not what you are. So you can, that's where being aware of it as, uh, in this intuitive way, as a its weight, its its presence, its its limitation, its pain, its pleasure, its neutrality. Because the body is is an aramana, is a, is an object that you're witnessing too, can observe. So, in observing consciousness, you don't, you can't, you can't get behind consciousness, but you can know consciousness is like this. So this awareness, consciousness, this awareness allows you to be fully conscious. It's like opening the gate. And then, then you have perspective on the, on the things that move and change, the impermanent condition, the anicca dukkanata of the khandhas. So it's like... A, one can compare it to a movie, a movie screen. You, you have a, a kind of wall of white, and you, the the shadows on the screen, and that the, um, can be 
beautiful, ugly, be exciting, can be boring, whatever. But you couldn't possibly see these shadows if, on, unless you had the screen, the consciousness, and awareness of, the, of that. So the, the importance is to, is to be the awareness, be the awakened, be that which is awake, and in this reference to Buddha knowing the Dhamma, uh, is not that I'm I'm the Buddha in terms of a of a person, isn't it? We 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 call it taking refuge in Buddha. Bhutang Sarnangachami is the way we refer to it. But what that really means in a practical situation is our ability to be present here and now. We can observe the shadows that move, the sense of myself as a person, and, and the the emotions of fear or desire or or love or hate, worry, anxiety, jealousy, and all these things. They're the things that begin and end, uh, arise and cease. And our relationship to them is no longer one of identity, but of interest, to see, see their nature is impermanent rather than, than holding to them as mine, which gives the impression that, that they are permanent because they're mine. And that you, when you think of yourself as a personality, you think you're the same personality all the time. When you're asleep, you're, you're, you're this person. Uh, when you're with your parents, you're the same person. When you're with your at the office, you're the same person, but that's not true. When you really look, you notice your, your, your personality changes according to the conditions present. Does anybody asleep have a personality? You know? So in terms of, of say, what your personality is now, is you can, you're observing it. It's, it's, and so the conditions now are such that you're not engaged in, in, in uh, as you would be, say, if you were with your family or if you were at work. So you, you begin to notice when, when these, these conditions are absent or when these conditions are present, then the personality tends to be like this. But the knowing <coughs> is what you really are in terms of uh, your, your, your being this knowing rather than than, um, than holding to the view that you are a, in any way a permanent person or personality. Because it's through this, this gate to the deathless that we are liberated of these delusions that we create, this suffering that we create. Now in the, the uh, second line, this Sotawanta uh, is one who pays attention. Sotawanta, uh, a listener, or the sense of listening. Uh, notice that when you when you really listen, you're kind of it's a, a broad spectrum that includes. You might listen to just one thing, but say a Sotawanta has this sense of listening in this broad way of being attentive to this present moment, or one who pays attention. Bamun Chan Tu Satang is 
means to, to surrender or to release into this faith, into this pure presence, and really trust this, because this is, the, this is how you realize the deathless reality uh, in which you uh, then can let go of your fears, your desires, your, your limitations, your, uh, the suffering that you create. You can be freed and liberated from these kind of habits, these limitations. So this evening, I'll, I've talked long enough, and uh, just for your reflection, anything I've said this evening is for that. You don't have to believe anything I say, and you can question any of it. Uh, so, uh, but the main thing is to reflect, in encouraging that you, uh, you're encouraging you to reflect on things rather than to just accept or just reject or, or uh, you know what teachers say with that. I'm not asking you to to accept what I say, but to reflect on it. And encouraging this kind of awakeness in, in you all, so that you will realize the ultimate reality, or the deathless, and be freed from all suffering. So I'll end the right now. Sadhu Karang Dadama Seh